One Hope Church. That you're here, special welcome to Porter and Davis coming in from Idaho to be with us today. That's pretty awesome. Great to see you guys. Great to see everybody. Um, so we're going to start something new um, this morning. You know, normally we teach straight through books of the Bible because that way we hit all the hard stuff and don't get to skip it and we get the full teaching of God's Word for our lives. Um, but we are going to take um, a little break from that uh, during this fall um, to study some forgotten heroes um, of the Old Testament and maybe a couple from the New Testament. But, um, you know, names that, you know, aren't as familiar, um, you know, even to, to people, you know, some people in, in the church. So if it's, an, if it's like Abraham or Moses, you know, someone like that, you know, people of great faith, but they're, they're not going to be in this series because this series is more about forgotten heroes. And there'll probably be some borderline ones that, you know, more people are familiar with than, than not. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens here. And I've got a few slots open, so if you have, you're like, man, I got one. You might not have, this one might not be on your list yet. You know, let let me know because I got a I got a couple forgotten hero slots available, so you can text or you know call, email, whatever you need to do. All right. So, but this morning we're going to be in Second Kings um, chapter five. Second Kings chapter five. So let's go to Lord. In prayer, Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you so much for your goodness to us, God. We thank you that we have the privilege to come and to worship you and to do that um, freely this morning um, without fear of um, great negative repercussions in our, our lives because of it. We know that's not true for everyone um, in the world today. And so, Lord, we want to remember our brothers and sisters and other, other nations other places, and also we want to give thanks that, that we can come here um, freely and help us not to take that for granted and help us to always look forward to gathering together, to worship you together, um, to listen to your word, um, to learn from you together. Uh, Lord, there's just things that we, we get being together that we can't get on our own, and so we, we're thankful that for that communion and fellowship that we have in you, and we pray that you would help us to build uh, one another up in love and in truth and in faith. Uh, we ask it um, in your name, Jesus, um, that you would teach us, that you would be among us today. We thank you that you are. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so in Second Kings chapter 5, um, the hero, the forgotten hero of our story is going to be a Hebrew slave girl. Um, and in fact, you know, we actually don't have her name given to us. So it's kind of easy to forget somebody when you don't know, you know, their name. Um, but she's, she's going to be, she's really important and integral to the story that we have in 2 Kings chapter 5. So I want to begin just by reading uh, the first four verses of this. And it says, Now Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria he was also a mighty man of valor but a leper and the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel 
And she waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, This and this said the girl who was from the land of Israel. Okay, so we want to stop here for a few minutes because, you know, there's parts of this, even in these first four verses, um, that are, you know, might be a little bit confusing, and there's parts of it that are, you know, just a lot to kind of take in and, and to connect with on an intellectual and on an emotional um, and, you know, and spiritual level. So we're introduced to some characters here. The first character that we're introduced to is Naaman. And so Naaman is a Syrian, you know, Syrian commander of the army. It says that he was great and honorable. It doesn't just give that as a blanket statement that he was great and honorable. He's great and honorable in the eyes, you know, of the king. Um, you know, he's he's great and honorable in the eyes of the king of Syria. The king of Syria at this time is Ben Hadad, and you know they they um, had conflict with. Um, you know the Israelites at this point. Um, you know Israel itself is is a divided um, nation. You know you've already had um, you know the the monarchies, uh, the the you know the the combined kingdoms. Well, the the you know just one singular kingdom um, when you had Saul and David and then Solomon and then after that you know the kingdom is, is split. So Israel is actually you know two different. Um, you know, really, two different nations at this point, um, or at least a, a you know a north and a south, and then, and they had different kings over each you know section. Now, there's one thing in here that you know at least is a you know initially can be a little bit of a head scratcher, because it says, "By Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria." That brings questions like, well, why is God giving victory to Syria over the Israelites. Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, but when you go back and you read the law that God gave to Moses, and God made a covenant, you know, with them and His people, and and basically it was a it was a conditional covenant. You know, if you will, if you are worshiping. Yahweh, if you are worshiping the, the true and living God, and you are keeping His commandments, and, and 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 His commandments, I mean, think about this. You know, love are to love God, to not use God's name in vain, to uh, not have any other gods before the true and living God. And then there are very practical things about you know how you should treat your neighbor. Do not murder. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not commit. Adultery. Now, can you imagine if we actually lived in a society where those things were followed? You know, that would be pretty good. If, if you never had to worry about somebody lying to you, if you knew that every deal that you were going to make was going to be a fair deal, that'd be, that'd be nice. If you, you don't have to worry about, you know, the, 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 the repercussions in a society of covetousness or of adultery, if if no one murdered anybody else, I mean, we take. I mean, wouldn't you take that when you say like that's going to be good? so? God had this thing like you follow that way, you keep God first, and and you know there's there's grace there. I mean, there's 
there's the heart, there's the effort, there's, there's going to be some, you know, it, it's not like one thing and, and God's going to, you know, do away with them by any means. That's not how this, the covenant was. But he also said, you know, if you go after other gods, you forget my ways, you do wickedness, you do evil in the sight of God, then he's going to give victory to your enemies. And they're going to overtake you. You know, that's the, that was the covenant and the deal God made with Israel. And so at this time, you know, I mean, you think about who had previously been king. You had King Ahab, who was extremely wicked, along with his wife, you know, Jezebel. You know, there's a reason that people don't name their daughters Jezebel. You know, <laughs> you know that, that's just not a name. If people have any understanding of the story... They don't name their daughter Jezebel. You just don't, just don't, that's just one that's just kind of off limits. You just don't, you just don't do that. Now, we might get to some others that people normally don't name their kids after, but they're actually like, well, actually, you can name that one. There, there are some cool ones that we might get to. We'll see. Um, you know, that on first glance, people, like, I don't know if I want to name my kid that, but you think about it a little more, like, hmm, maybe so, maybe so. Um, but Jezebel, nah. And so, the king of Israel this time is Jehoram, and he's the son of Ahab and Jezebel. Interestingly, his name means, you know, God or Yahweh is to be exalted. So, now we see he doesn't do that a whole lot, but that's what his name actually actually means. Okay, so he's the king of Israel this time. And so, that's why the Lord had given victory to Syria. And it does say he was a mighty man of valor. You know, he was a, he, he was a type of warrior that, that people would want to go into battle with. Because you know he's going to be a good commander. He's going to do his, his job. He's not going to become fearful um, in the fight and, you know, make bad decisions that get his people slaughtered. Okay, so, you know, people want to go in with this type of, person. But since he has a significant problem, he's a leper. He's a leper. That's a big problem. Because there, this, this deal with the leprosy, there was, there was no cure for this. It was contagious. It was a degenerative disease that you know, ultimately results in death. Now, if he had been an Israelite, he actually would have been separated from the community because they were so you know, careful and they were instructed to be so careful about this disease because it was contagious. So the lepers would you know, have their own communities outside of the rest of the community as, you know, not as um, anything about their value, not that they're less valuable, but that they wouldn't want to take the risk of infecting you know, mass percentage of the, of the population with this terrible disease that they didn't have a cure for. So that makes sense. But in Syria, it was different. He had still to be very careful not to touch anyone. Um, but as long as he could do his job, he could maintain his position. And so it seems like this leprosy, as we come to it here, is it's in its earlier, you know, stages. Okay, but it's still you know he knows what the end game is here. It's just Tom. He's just dealing with Tom. 
and how much time does he have? And then we read that the Syrians had gone out on raids. It doesn't say that he was part of this raid, but they brought back, it doesn't say Nehemiah was part of the raid, but they brought back this young girl from the land of Israel. And so, you know, the Syrians would come in and, you know, when Claire and I got to, to visit Israel earlier this year and you're in, you know, you're above this, this, on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, up in the hills, you can see the mountains of Syria in the distance. So they're coming down, you know, from, you know, the, the north and they go in and they would, you know, on these raids, it would be more, you know, you go in and you probably kill some people and take some people and take some things. That's generally how that worked. Um, you know, it's a, it's a brutal, it's a brutal business. Um, but this girl, she, she lives, we don't know anything about her father, but you can imagine that things in her village did not go well during the Syrian raid. And she probably, you know, saw some things and some things may have even happened to her own, own family. You know, there's conjecture there, but you know, if you're talking about what normally happens in these sort of situations and knowing how humans treat one another, um, you know, you, you can imagine that it's not good. And it says she became a, a servant. She's a, I mean, she, you know, by all accounts, has been kidnapped and she is a slave. She's a Hebrew slave and that her responsibility is to serve Naaman's wife. That's her place. Now, what's amazing in this is that if anybody had a reason to hate their enemies, she did, right? Took her from her home, took her from her place, took her from her family. Bad things happened in her village. And if she, anybody has a reason to hate their enemy, she does. From a human perspective, she had a right to be bitter. She had a right to desire those, that those Syrians who were responsible for her condition, that they would die. But she didn't view things that way. Now, some people may say, oh, you know, she may have had Stockholm Syndrome, which is when, you know, captives have, have like a sympathy and an affection for those who have captured them. That's not what she has. She has a different perspective because she has faith and she has a great faith at that. Because what does she say? She understands that Naaman has this problem. And she understands that there is someone who could help him. She has a compassion. She definitely does have a compassion on Naaman. Because she has a faith that he could be helped. Now this is a great faith and we need to consider how great a faith this is. She had never seen a leper healed before. She had only heard about it. She may have heard about it from a long time before. You know, if she was in a place where they, you know, read the law, which is very likely, she may have heard about Moses' sister, you know, Miriam getting leprosy and then being healed by God from that. But she has no contemporary examples. Jesus actually says this in Luke chapter 4. He says, you know, in, in the days of Naaman the Syrian, you know, weren't there many lepers in Israel, but none of them were healed. 
except, well, kind of given the story away, but I think you all have probably figured out by now what's going to happen. Naaman's going to get healed. Okay? But Jesus says he's the only one. You know, and he uses that in a contention against, you know, the, the Pharisees. And, you know, because uh, he, he says that and, and other things do them, you know, they go to try, to try to kill him, try to kill Jesus for that. But that was one of the things that, that he used um, to show that God um, cares about the faith a, not, a lot more than he does the ethnicity. But again, back to this Hebrew slave girl. She had maybe heard about it happening a long time before, many generations before her. But she's never seen it. And yet she believed that if Naaman got to Elisha, that he would be healed of his leprosy. So... You know, this is how this this goes. Naaman's wife, you imagine that conversation, goes to Naaman and says, now you're not going to believe what our, our Hebrew slave girl told me today. And then, well, maybe, you know, there's that maybe, and goes and tells, you know, the king, we have this Hebrew slave girl and she said this and this. And so, you know, this is how it is with these um, sort of, of things when somebody has a, a sickness that normally results in, in death. It's going to be terrible and it's going to result in death. You know, any bit of hope, you know, people are often willing to pursue, you know, anything. So, like, well, well why not try? Well, why not try? And so in verse 5 we read, Now the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. So, you know, here you get an idea of how valuable Naaman was to the king of Syria, to Ben-Hadad, to how much, you know, there's care and how much value he believes Naaman brings to the table as, you know, the, the commander of the army. Because that's, an, that's enough silver and gold that was, it was worth enough to import 2, 000, over 2,000 horses. That's the, that's the value of the silver and gold that Naaman takes with him to go see Elisha. Enough to buy over 2,000 horses, plus the nice clothes. You, you know, I kind of wonder if they had the, tra- the tailors you know, travel too, so they would you know, fit the clothes. Uh, for who they were for. But then he brought, in verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So now, here we see the lack of faith of King Jehoram. We see, you know, or Joram, you know, depending on which 
that it's, he's known by both names. But consider his lack, lack of faith in contrast to the Hebrew slave girl stuck in Syria. That there he is with all of his resources, all of his wealth, all of his power, and he knows that he can do nothing for this man. See, because the problem for King Jehoram is, is for the, the problem with so many powerful people, and we're going to see this as we continue the story, is that they tend to trust on their power and on their resources. You know, the Hebrew servant girl doesn't have power. She doesn't have resources in the human sense, but she has an all-powerful God. And so she has faith. And that's more powerful than all the power and all the resources of King Ben-Hadad, of Naaman, or or King Jehoram, or any other king that has ever ruled in their own strength apart from God. She has more power accessible to her. She has more resources accessible to her because her great God is accessible to her. But King Jehoram is looking this, you know, through human eyes. Even though his name means God is exalted, he doesn't see the situation as an opportunity for God to be exalted. He sees this situation as just an opportunity for trouble. I'm not going to be able to heal this dude. And then the king of Syria is going to use that as an excuse to come down here with his army and to fight against us again. It's just interesting here because, you know, I think at this point, Naaman and the king of Syria, they had an I hope so faith. King Jehoram has no faith. And the slave girl has an I know so faith. Verse 8. Well, first, you know, when King of Israel reads his letter, what's his reaction? He tears his clothes. Now, you know, that's, that's a cultural thing. You know, normally when we get bad news, we don't, you know, tear our clothes, though. I mean, maybe sometimes appropriate. I mean, you know, you kind of wonder if they had like, the, you know how the wrestlers have like the tearaway, you know, shirts, if they kind of, their clothes were a little more on the tearaway side. But, you know, they, I mean, he just like tears his clothes. And anguish. You know, people in, in this culture are... are you know, they, they have their ways of expressing themselves, and in, in their, um, you know, when, when they're when they're feeling something. And in a lot of our cultures, you know, we've been some more so than others. We got different cultures in the room, but there's on a spectrum of how you express yourself or how you suppress yourself, and what's deemed, you know, culturally appropriate changes a lot among the people and even among, you know, the times. I would argue that we don't express ourselves enough and that when we do, we often express ourselves in inappropriate ways with inappropriate language. But, you know, this was a way that was 
normally known as a way to express that you are distraught for one reason or another. So in verse 8 it says, So when Elisha, the man of God, notice that, when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel torn his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Basically, I mean, the short summary of this is, calm down, king. I got this. Because you got the king, you know, you're the king. You have, like, you have this earthly human power here, right? But, you know, Elisha knows he's the prophet and he has the power of God accessible to him. So it's like, this is, you know, he's like, I've got, I've got this. God's got this. Like, just calm it down, king. And so then in verse 9, then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. I love this scene. Just imagine this in your, in your head. And Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. I love that. I just love that. Naaman comes up there all big and bad in his cha- horse and chariot comes to the door, Elisha doesn't even go outside. He just sends somebody and says, just tell him, go, go wash seven times in Jordan River. And it says, Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Aban and the Farfara, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could not I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So now we have Naaman's pride getting in the way. It's a barrier. His pride is a barrier to blessing. We need to understand big time, big lesson this morning. Pride is always a barrier to blessing. Pride is in direct opposition to blessing. So let's break down Naaman's pride. First one is, surely he will come out and see me. What does he mean by that? He means this, I am a great man, and this will be a meeting of two great men. Two great and powerful men, going to meet right here. I'm a great man. That's what he means by that. And that's why he feels so disrespected that Elisha, and it is, now now let's be real clear, it is disrespectful. What Elisha does here is disrespectful. And it's intentionally disrespectful. And then he says, aren't our rivers better? Now, what does he mean by that? Let me summarize that. I believe this is an accurate summary of what he's saying with that. Aren't our rivers better? You know, haven't our gods given us a better land with better rivers? So if all I need to do is go get into a river, I should have just stayed at home. Because our gods have given us a better land and better rivers. Yeah, he thinks... He's wasting his time here. It's like, I came down here all the way from Damascus 
with enough silver and gold to buy over 2,000 horses. And this man won't even get out his tent. He is agitated, which means highly agitated. <laughs> so it led to this rage. Again, this is strategic on the part of Elijah because without humility, there can be no knowledge of God. Without humility, there can be no knowledge of God. It wouldn't do Naaman any good to be healed of leprosy, but to be still left with all his pride intact. Because guess what's going to happen to Naaman sooner or later? No matter what happens with his leprosy, he's going to die. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have care and compassion and try to help people when we can and extend life. Of course, we should. But what I'm saying with that is Elisha has the big perspe- bigger perspective because he cares about the physical, but he cares much more about Naaman's spiritual condition. And followers of Jesus, we need to understand this, that we have a responsibility to do all the good that we can while we can. And we have a responsibility to the poor and to the oppressed and the afflicted. But do not mistake, do not, get, do not get it twisted to where somehow you end up thinking that our responsibilities to people's physical conditions are more important than our responsibilities to their spiritual conditions. Because the enemy will have us do all that good in the world as long as Jesus isn't part of that picture. The enemy doesn't care nothing about that. Because that doesn't affect people's eternities. That only affects people's temporaries. And we need to care about both. Verse 13, And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean. Now these servants were bold. They, they were bold enough to tell the person who had the power to have them killed. You're not thinking about this right. They were bold enough to speak the truth in love. Because they actually cared about him. If they hadn't cared about him, they would have just gone on, you know, say, okay, just encouraged him in his rage. These people here are crazy. Let's go back and get our army and come back and slaughter them. Let's just handle it that way. But they had a perspective as well. And it's probably because they were in a more humble position in life that they were able to have this, this perspective. It's, I'm just going to throw this out there, that it's really hard for, for powerful people to have a good perspective when it comes to the big picture and eternal things. Because their power and their resources cloud their judgment because they think that they are more than they are. And that's one of the things that makes it so difficult to be in a position of power and to do it well in a way that serves people and not just the people that are in power. So they were wise. 
And thankfully, Naaman took advantage of this teachable moment and he humbled himself. In verse 14, it says, So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. How beautiful is that? And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. See that humility, how that's changed? His perspective has changed. I know that there's one true and living God. And now Naaman, before he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a great man, I'm going to meet with another great man. He says, Look, listen to how that's changed. I am your servant. He had a heart change. That heart change, the first part of that heart change is what enabled him to get into the water. The second part of that heart change came out after the result of obedience. And there's that connection there of faith and obedience. He believed enough to obey. Now that statement where he says, you know, when he says there's you know only the true God, there's only true God is is from is in Israel. Well, we need to not, I think, muddy the waters with that because it's not about a geographic location that this is where God is and He's not anywhere else. What He's, what I believe, what He's really saying there is that the the true God is the God that's worshipped here by the people that are here. Not all of the people, you know, we know that for sure, but some of the people. That that this God, this is the key thing. That this God, Yahweh, is the true and living God. Now that's a difficult statement to make today. That's a difficult, difficult statement to make today because the world will accept any type of religious relativism. But the moment you say, you know, Yahweh, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit is the true God. Well, well now you've got a problem. So the key for us in this is that is not to be arrogant. We can't make that same mistake of pride and, and arrogance that we see so often in the scripture and throughout, throughout history. But we do have to hold firmly to the truth. Hold to that truth in love. Because what other God is humble like our God? What other God humbled himself and put on human flesh and became like us and died for our sins? What other God is perfectly holy, loving, just, merciful, who gives us such grace, forgiveness, and salvation? There's only one. And that's not something that we say with, with pride. That's not something that then we say, well, we're better than somebody else. No, we're not better than anybody else. We're, we're just as, we were just as lost, just as without hope, just as confused, just as messed up as everybody else. But we humbled ourselves to a place to accept that we couldn't do it on our own and that Jesus did it for us. 
we put our trust in the grace of God. And we stopped trying to make our own God or to work and earn it. Because, you know, what would say the name? If he had asked you to do some great thing, you know, because that leaves the pride intact. That leaves the pride intact. You know, if you tell people, hey, you know, you got to do all this stuff to be right with God, you know, people sign up for that. Because they get to have their pride intact. They get to say, I earn it. I deserve it. I get to be with God because I'm great. My greatness still gets to be maintained. And with the true and living God, your greatness doesn't get to be maintained. That illusion has to get stripped away to where it's just the humility of, I'm not worthy, but God is. And it's His grace and His love you know, as has been said, you know, to us before, and, and we repeat the same thing. You know, we're just telling, you know, we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We don't say, you know, we're great and and we're so much smarter and wiser and we figured all this stuff out. No, 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 no. God revealed His His self to us. He revealed His grace and His love and His truth and His Word and through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we've received God's grace. And that other people can receive that too. And that's our great hope. That's our good news. But there has to be that humility that Naaman said that, you know, he had to acknowledge that all the gods he had worshipped in his life up to that point weren't real. He had to acknowledge that all of his self-reliance in his life up until that point was worthless. And then you have this. Another part of the lesson in verse 16. Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. See, Elisha wasn't there for the money. Elisha wasn't there for the money. Now, he, he received provision from God, and, he re- and that was often through the hands of other people. But he wouldn't accept these great riches from Naaman because he needs Naaman to fully understand that money can't buy spiritual things. He doesn't, and even though you know, it's out of thankfulness that Naaman wants to give this, he doesn't want to give an opportunity for the enemy to use it in the future to confuse Naaman about the motivations of Elisha. There's going to be time in the future for Naaman to to grow in his generosity as that's connected to the growth in his spiritual life. But that can wait. Wait. Hold on a second. Elisha just said no to value that can buy over 2,000 horses. That's a lot of wealth. He bought a lot of land. I mean, these horses were imported. Like, they're expensive. He bought a lot of land. But that's not what he's there for. He wanted Naaman in the future. I'm sure Elisha wanted Naaman to be generous, but he wants that connected to his spiritual life and not to his physical healing. 
So then in verse 17, we'll read 17 through 19, and this part is like, woo! So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And Elijah said to him, Elisha said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. Again, Elisha gives room and space for Naaman's, you know, spiritual you know, development and his maturity, you know, over over time. He doesn't expect for Naaman to have like a, it all at once. Okay? Because we sound it's like, man, you're going to let him go into that temple and, and you know, do that. And, and it's a physical act of bow, bowing, but I think Naaman is pretty clear. He's not, he, he's not actually bowing to the God anymore. He's still just doing out of respect for the king. Um, and, you know, you could, you, you could argue, you know, Elisha should have told him something different. But I'm, I'm not going to argue with Elisha. I'll, I'll leave that to somebody else to argue with Elisha. Um, that's, not my, that's not my place. Um, you know, I know that. But there's a, there's a grace and an understanding in the situation. And it's also, you know, I think part of that, you know, you have to go with conviction and what the Holy Spirit convicts of in a particular time and place. He's not, in this, he's not denying God. He's not denying that there's one true and living God. There would be a problem with that. If he said, when I go back to my master, I'm going to deny that, you know, Yahweh is a true and living God. That would be a, obviously a, a big problem. And so, again, we have grace and mercy given to Naaman um, in, this, in this situation. Now, I want to read this, and we're going to finish, finish this up here shortly. But there's another part of the story that, again, is important. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Probably what he could, like, carry. Even though it's like 75 pounds of silver and a couple of clothes, he's going to go wandering back, you know, with. So, so Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried them on ahead of him. Well, now he's got help, so he can take more. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in, in the house. And when he, then he let the men go and, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. Now, let's just back up just for a second. Now, again, Gehazi, he's, 
he's with Elisha. He's one of Elisha's servants. And he's the, the situation. And says, Naaman this Syrian. That's part of it. Because again, that's the enemy. Has been spared. You know, because you know what? You know what Gehazi would have liked for Elisha to have done? Called down fire from heaven. Burned up Naaman and his servants. And they kept all the stuff. Because... Gehazi's, you know, looking at it from a, not from a spiritual perspective, he's looking at it from a nationalistic perspective and a personal profit perspective. That's what he wanted. So he says, as the Lord lives. See, he's going to bring God into this, make it sound spiritual by using the Lord's name. And then he's going to go and he's going to tell Allah, and then he's going to tell another law. And listen to Elisha in verse 26. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? You know, all the things that stuff could have bought. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you. And your descendants from ever, forever. And as he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. Elisha wasn't playing about the things of God. And I'm just going to throw this out here. The prosperity preachers of today are just like Gehazi. They're greedy to the core. And they're, they're, they are fortunate that Elisha isn't around to give them leprosy today. I, I just imagine like there's a convention of prosperity, you know, preachers that are just there for the money, just there because they're, they're greedy. And it kind of being like an Oprah giveaway show with, with you know, Elisha up there. He's like, and you get leprosy, and you get leprosy, and you all get leprosy. You know, you pull that off for them. And that's what they would deserve. Because the things of, of God are precious, and they're spiritual, and it's not supposed to get clouded over by people's greed. Naaman's not supposed to go home confused about intentions of Elisha confused about what's important to God and what's not important to God he's supposed to have a a clear vision and people like Gehazi they cloud that vision through their own greed and unfortunately today that's still commonplace so we need to remember that God's servants should not be greedy and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're God's servant. Okay, let's be clear about that. God's servants should not be greedy. God's servants should seek God's glory. God's servants should give people time for spiritual maturity. And some lessons we can learn from Elisha and Gehazi. From Naaman, we learn that humility is necessary to know God. And that the spiritual perspective of a person can change radically. Because he went from, you know, making sacrifices and worshiping all these false gods and thinking all that, you know, these gods had 
given him you know, his place and his power and his, his resources and this wonderful land and everything that he was in, and then he came to understand there's one true and living God. His perspective changed in a radical way. But let's not forget our forgotten hero. And may she not be forgotten. That Hebrew servant, that Hebrew slave girl, who teaches us that our situation does not have to dominate our attitude or our perspective. Situation does not have to dominate our attitude or perspective. She you know, went through some really rough things. And it would be understandable if that you know, clouded her vision and, and gave her a dark you know, perspective on all things in life. That would be understandable. But that would mean that the enemy won multiple times. You know, and, and she allowed the enemy to have one victory that was outside of her control. Okay? Outside of her control. But what was in her control, she was going to have victory. Her attitude, her perspective, those things were in her control. Her faith. Because with faith in God, it's possible even to love your enemies. Jesus told us to do that, right? He said, you know, love your enemies. Well, this servant girl was already living that out. You know, she's got the heart of Jesus. Already living that out. Shows us that God can use his people despite how difficult of a position they may be. <coughs> and sometimes those difficult positions are actually great opportunities but again, you have to have the vision to see it. Imagine if she had just sulked, if she had just been bitter, if she had just hated her enemy. We don't get any of the rest of this, folks. The rest of this stuff doesn't happen. It shows that God is with you in every circumstance. Your circumstances are not a sign of God's favor, of lack of favor in your life. God is with you, whether a believer in Jesus... A believer in Jesus who seeks to love God and be obedient, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're free or slave, whatever situation they're in, God is with them. Jesus promises that he is with them to the end of the age. He doesn't always promise that he'll save us from things, but he'll be there with us through the difficult things. There's a big difference in the theology. And what happens, what I've seen time and time again, is people get fed this bull theology that if they have faith in God, nothing bad's going to happen to them. And then something really bad happens to them and they lose faith in God. Well, that faith really wasn't a real faith because that faith was like contingent on this deal that God never made. God never promised us an easy life. And so that just messes with people's faith. What people, people don't need to stop being taught. They, they just have enough faith and their life's going to go easy. Because guess what? Death isn't easy. No matter how it comes about. And unless Jesus comes back first, every one of us is going to experience that personally. But we're also going to experience that people we love. That's not easy. 
hardship, economic hardship, sickness, disease, they happen. They happen. And it just wrecks the faith of so many people because they were sold a false bill of goods. In the name of God, in the name of Jesus, and it's disgusting. So that greedy preachers could get more money put into a plate. And we just, we just got to say, as the true church of Jesus, like, you know, around the world, we're just sick and tired of that. Like, that's just got to stop, because that does so much more harm than good at the end of the day. It provides this temporary illusion of things being better in, somebody, in people's lives. And we need to seek to please God in all things. You seek to please God in all things, and you can see that that's the heart of this Hebrew slave girl. And you know, we need to remember her when next time you're in a difficult situation. Remember her faith. Ask that question. What what would her faith look like in this situation? How would she be praying? How would she talk to God about these things? Man, she had a lot of faith. She's a hero. She's inspirational. You know, and again, it, it doesn't justify her circumstances. You know, other people should be fighting for her freedom and advocating for her freedom and, you know, all of, all of these things. But that's not the point of this story. Because the point of this story is that followers of God find themselves in all sorts of circumstances all over the world. And we have to do the best to glorify God and honor God with whatever circumstance we happen to be in at the time. But it's about that faith because, you know, one of the things that enabled her to have that again is that she was under no illusion. She knew she wasn't in control. You know, she, she knew she didn't get to decide everything that happened to her in life. But, but Naaman... And the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, and the king of Israel, King Jehoram, they're all under this illusion that they've got power, and they've got you know, the ability to set the course of their own destiny. And it's true that they have more margin to be able to do certain things, right? But in the big picture, they've got nothing. In the big picture, they're blinded by all that they have. Their wealth and their power. And it's harder for them to have faith. It has to get stripped away. So let's not be under illusion this morning. We don't know when the next tragedy is going to strike. I mean, that's it, man. Well, we came for a hopeful service. No, listen. We don't know what's going to happen but we know who's going to be with us. We don't know what's going to happen next, good or bad, but we know who's going to be with us. That's our hope. That's our faith. We have Jesus. We have Jesus. We have the one that loved us enough to go to that cross, and so when we take that bread and that cup this morning, say, thank you, Jesus, that my faith is in you. Thank you, Jesus, that my faith is not in some God who's you know, arbitrary or willy-nilly that maybe I've done enough good or maybe I've done, not done too much bad or whatever it is, but I've got a God who loves me enough to take my place at the cross. 
and give thanks that our faith is in the true and living God who provides salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you teach us from this Hebrew slave girl this morning, from Naaman, from Elisha, from these different characters, some that did bad and some that did good. And Lord, help us to learn from all of it, to apply it for our lives. But Lord, would you please help us that our faith would be more like this girl's faith. Would you give us more of a measure of faith like she had? Lord, that we'd be less bitter. Lord, that we would have more hope. Lord, that we would have better perspective. Lord, would you please give us some more faith like she had. As we take that bread and that cup and we say thank you to you this morning, we ask it. In your name, Jesus.